Coming up today, how Zoom dysmorphia is following us into the real world, and we investigate YouTube's animal abuse problem. You're listening to The Wired UK Podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Templeton, and joining me this week are Amit Kawala. Hello. And Matt Burgess. Hello. This was the week when Facebook-owned WhatsApp was slapped with a 225 million euro fine by Ireland's data watchdog. It's the second largest GDPR fine to date and relates to the service failing to properly explain to users how their data was being used. WhatsApp has appealed the decision. This was also the week when an art collector paid £244,000 in cryptocurrency for an NFT by the famous street artist Banksy, only to then find out that it was a fake. The piece looked nothing like a Banksy, but there was a link to the auction on the artist's website, and the money has now been returned in an apparent hoax. And finally, it was also the week when the UK's children's internet code came into force. The code is a little-known piece of legislation that requires companies to increase online privacy for children, and in the last few weeks the code has seen TikTok, Google and Instagram introduce new measures. We ran a story about this on the site this week. These are changes that have been introduced globally, and nobody seemingly understands that it's because of this quite obscure piece of regulation in the UK. And correct me if I'm wrong, Matt, but the the gist is that the platforms would rather make these changes on a global scale than risk lots of different kinds of regulation forcing them to do even more complicated things. Yeah, exactly. I mean, if there's a piece of legislation out there that's saying that they need to do various things, then um, they might, and it's the strictest legislation that there is, then they might as well introduce it globally. And they also get a bit of a PR win by um, changing something around the world that has been introduced in one country. It's been interesting to see. You know, we've, we've reported a lot over the last several years that tech platforms are somewhat allergic to regulation and are trying to keep it at arm's length for as long as possible. But in this instance, they've accepted the regulation and, as you say, used it to say, hey, we're introducing these great new features to keep children safer on our platforms. Well, you are, but that's only because regulation has been passed in one of your biggest markets and you've decided to roll that out globally. So I guess it's a good example of regulation working and for a lot of people will be very welcome news. All right, what did we learn this week? Amit, I'll start with you. I learned the frankly horrifying fact that astronauts have to sleep next to an air vent uh, when they're in space on something like the International Space Station, and that's to stop a bubble of exhaled carbon dioxide forming around their heads while they sleep. So, like, an air vent that pumps oxygen onto them? Just something that clears the bubble, because I guess if if you're in zero gravity and you exhale, the CO2 doesn't disperse, it just kind of stays there. And if there's no breeze to move it around, then it just kind of sits there and your, your air gets more and more co2 in until you're just breathing in co2 that you've previously exhaled so as long as there's an air vent it can push the co2 away so then there's always kind of a supply of fresh air for you how very curious speaking of curious matt burgess what did you learn this week uh, this week, I learned something from, uh, well, about Operation London Bridge, which is the plan for when the Queen um, dies in the UK. Um, and this is because there were some new details around uh, Operation London Bridge published by uh, 
news website Politico. Some of it was already published by The Guardian in the past, but there was a few new details and stuff in there. Um, and one thing that sort of stood out a little bit to me was that um, the, the social media plan for when the Queen dies uh, is obviously going to be a big part of um, what happens. And these plans include changing the royal family's website to black, um, issuing a short statement, and then essentially having a social media blackout for all of the sort of official channels uh, and UK government website and other social media pages will display a black black banner as well. There was another detail in this which I quite liked. Retweets will be banned, I think, for almost a fortnight from any government accounts unless they've been approved by the government's head of communications. So no retweets for two weeks to avoid causing any offence. It's going to be wild. Absolutely wild. Our first story this week is about YouTube's big animal abuse problem. Now, you might not have noticed it, but YouTube is riddled with videos that glamorise animal abuse and game YouTube's algorithm to get millions of views. At the same time, these videos make money for their creators through advertising and other means. Individuals and charities have been raising the alarm over animal abuse on YouTube for years, from fake rescues to fights, baiting and animal torture. Reports about the issue date back to at least 2007, and every year there are new appeals for YouTube to take action. But the platform has a reputation for being unresponsive on the issue. Matt, a recent investigation by KG Orphanides, a Y contributor, has dug into the fake animal abuse video problem. Yeah, and it is quite a big problem, and it's a grim problem as well. And the story is, is quite harrowing in some places. And we'll probably try and keep the sort of worst of the details of abuse, etc., out of the podcast. But we'll also include a link to the show notes uh, to the story in the show notes. Um, and I wanted to start with an example of what we really mean when we're talking about fake animal rescue videos, because that's where a lot of the investigation that we did uh, was centered upon. Um, so in one video, which was called "Kitten from Kitten from King Cobra Attack Be Rescued in Time," you try. Not not to cry, uh, which was watched by 2.7 million people on the channel Rescue Animals. It opened with a pair of farmers inspecting a field, and then they apparently heard a nearby disturbance. After a bit of investigation from themselves, they find a kitten, and this kitten is fighting for its life. It's tangled in the grip of a python and meows until it appears to stop breathing. Um, eventually, this python is removed uh, from the kitten by an apparent rescuer who performs chest compressions until the tiny creature begins to move again. The video itself and the footage has appeared on YouTube in various formats in recent years and was re-uploaded by this channel called Rescue Animals. And it's not the only daring feat of animal rescue that was uploaded by this particular channel. Um, many of its other videos feature similar scenarios uh, where a couple of people stumble across an animal in distress in a most of the time improbable situation and then one of them ends up rescuing the animal while the other films and it doesn't no point stops filming to help the rescue or to help the animal um, so it's all very much documented and captured to be uploaded to youtube later on um, and another video by the same channel saw the rescuers walk out of a house purposefully turn a couple of corners and find a cat with its feet tied together uh, with a with uh, some sort of masking tape or some other similar sort of tape. Uh, and they did this very much uh, sort of, yeah, just after straight away leaving the house and finding it, which all seems very improbable. Yeah, I think most people watching these videos would recognise that they are fake. But as you said right at the top, 
there are just two examples and we've left out some of the more extreme examples of really really abhorrent abuse that we found in these stage rescue videos and they've been collectively viewed millions of times and these videos are making a lot of money right they use sensationist titles doctor thumbnails and really upsetting content to lure in viewers but how big is this problem matt so as with a lot of things on youtube it's very hard to quantify the exact scale of things just due to the amount of videos that are being uploaded and uh the amount of footage that's being sort of published every few minutes uh, across the platform in total so there's, it's very difficult to work out transparency on youtube around some of these things which means actually quite often that there's a lack of reporting on some of the things that happen on the platform but we do know with animal abuse it is a large and persistent problem particularly with fake rescue videos as well um so our investigation turned up uh, more than sort of like what well, we alerted YouTube to 28 of the most obvious channels dedicated to stage rescues and animal cru- cruelty uh, and illustrated a number of ways which they were profiting from the content so some of them were making money from advertising others sold uh, sort of print on demand t-shirts that you could buy uh, others requested viewers make donations to PayPal uh, so they can rack- rake money that way and a number use of these types of channels use deceptive logos and stolen videos as well um all of the all but two of the channels that we reported to youtube so 26 out of 28 were removed by the company after we flagged them but this is just sort of like the tip of the iceberg of the problem so a non-profit uh, animal well- welfare media organization called lady freethinker has been investigating this for quite a while and last year investigated 200 fake rescues and fights between wild animals as part of broader research into animal cruelty on youtube um and those collectively those videos have been viewed more than 17 million times uh, and another independent researcher that we were and more of a collective than necessarily one individual researcher that we were speaking to uh, called umby uh, they have uh, flagged more than 2,000 channels with videos of these types of abuse or f- or fake and staged different types of rescues and the types of videos uh, are quite wide uh, sort of uh, ex- encompassing lots of different things as well so some of them involved sort of puppy farms and puppy mills and uh, fake animal shelters there were stolen videos going on and some of them in the most extreme um, instances had links to sort of outright bestiality Um, and Umby's research found that multiple channels often appear to be operated by the same people and use same PayPal details so there's some coordination with some of these types of videos that are being uploaded as well. And the people that are doing this aren't just doing it for fun they're doing it to make money in order to make money they need to to an extent game youtube's systems so how are they doing that yeah so it's worth pointing out that sort of rescue videos are a a generally popular genre on youtube so legitimate animal rescue charities can use uh, the type of videos to um, themselves uh, promote what their charity does and the type of works that they do so they're the sort of videos where you see a dog is being recovered from being mistreated to them being in a happy home and they generally promote the work that the charities do they don't show anything that is particularly uh, sort of that could offend people or could uh, upset people or is distressing or anything like that and these when these videos are being produced by legitimate organizations they're very much done to uh, highlight the work that the charity is doing um and it means that 
they're often quite emotive videos. They're ones that can uh, draw people's attention. They can get millions of views. Um, and it also makes the type of scenarios ideal for scammers and people that want to produce fake rescue videos to get to just get views and to make uh, money through advertising on YouTube. Um, so there can be a little bit of sort of like overlap in some of the themes between legitimate videos and fake videos, but those that are being produced by uh, scammers and people that are trying to make money out of this will very much just be on the sort of gory end of this and often uh, not produced as well and not linked to uh, official charities or any any way uh, or in any way like that so um quite often the people that are producing these types of videos the founder of uh, lady free thinker told us uh, they do the, the abusers do very little to hide their tracks. Uh, they use predictable keywords and hashtags to attack tracks large audiences. And all of the videos are optimized for YouTube's algorithm. So on these fake rescue videos, uh, the preview thumbnails are often edited to include extra blood uh, and even uh, some of the clip, even some clips which don't show sort of uh, abuse or things necessarily happening they have titles that are very sort of extreme uh, and thumbnails that give the impression that they can cont contain gory content um, and on fake channels generally sort of blood gore and animal suffering are rampant with videos often including details of people's personal paypal accounts for people to send money to uh, and they very much like uh, encourage people to, to do that trope of like and subscribe to a youtube channel just for the sake of uh, essentially them growing their own channels rather than any other purpose or charity or stuff like that and over the last few years multiple charities and researchers have said that youtube should be monitoring hashtags and keywords that are commonly associated with animal abuse videos and fake staged rescue videos uh, and that fingerprinting technology which is used for some types of content already should be rolled out to cover widely re-uploaded animal abuse videos that have been removed in the past and as you said the reason that this stuff is so popular is it's quite easy to find. This isn't an obscure corner of YouTube that hardly anyone is stumbling across. If you want to find this stuff, you put in obvious keywords and you find it. And it doesn't necessarily mean that people are looking for videos of animal abuse. They want to see videos of puppies being heroically res rescued and kittens being given new homes when previously they were in danger. But rather than seeing legitimate charities work, they're seeing the work of these scammers. It's not hidden. It's right there in front of their eyes. So what does YouTube say? It's been quite slow to change, right? Yeah. So as you mentioned earlier, sort of reports around this type of content and uh, faked rescues and generally animal abuse have been uh, emerging around stuff on YouTube since pretty much since it was started. Uh, so there's been more than 10 years of sort of reporting on these types of issues. And sort of historically, YouTube has been quite slow to react and change to some of these uh, reports that have come out. Um, so when it removed the channels that we reported to it in March, the company also uh, started to change some of its policies and take a bit more action, saying that it would introduce a ban within uh, the coming weeks on uh fake and staged animal rescue videos and then eventually in june at the end of june on june 30th uh, youtube took its most significant action by implementing this ban it announced that uh, it was introducing an explicit ban on videos that include animal rescues that have been staged and that place animals in harmful scenarios um, and 
generally these videos fall under YouTube's wider policies against vi violence. Uh, and a spokesman said, spokesperson said uh, that content depicting violence or abuse towards animals has never been allowed on YouTube and that they wanted to introduce this specific ban on uh, stage rescues to take their policies a bit further. And they added that the company uses machine learning and human review to try and enforce these policies. Again, we kind of say this a lot with these kinds of stories. If YouTube wanted, really wanted to get rid of this problem, it would get rid of it. But seemingly having it on its platform is an okay compromise given the perceived cost of properly cracking down on it. So YouTube has said it has now taken more concrete action against this kind of content. It says that it's never been allowed on YouTube, despite the fact that we found thousands of examples of it. So has YouTube's latest action made any difference? So yes and no, really. So the change that it made at the end of June um, has resulted in uh, some of the sort of searches being cleared up. So if you search now for animal rescue, um, the results that, that show up on the first page have been cleaned up uh, from what we found at the time of writing. And the first instance of outright animal abuse uh, sort of appeared 18th in the list. So maybe not top of the list anymore, but um, there was still some of it in there. And if you search for terms that aren't around animal rescue, so if you search for something such as uh, poor puppy, uh, you'll see almost nothing but monetized channels that appear to uh, profit from animal abuse videos. Some of them have got millions of views and it's a similar story for uh, if you're searching some uh, search terms around um, kittens and cats, essentially. Um, the day after YouTube announced its policy change, the charity uh, Lady Freethinker uh, found that more than 400 stage animal rescue videos were still live on its platform from an initial search that it did. Um, and in recent weeks as well, we've been looking, before this story was published, we were looking at the impact of this ban on there. And we found another channel called Animal Rescues, which was the same name as the one that was removed that we talked about at the beginning with those videos around uh, a kitten being uh, uh, grabbed by a python. Um, this, But apparently this channel doesn't appear to be linked to that original one in any way, uh, but appeared after the ban was live and until we published the story apparently was sort of undetected by YouTube. And this channel itself had uh, was trading on videos of kittens in plastic bags, dogs with feet taped together and thrown into rubbish heats and generally animals sort of being chained up in, in various scenarios. Um, there was a donation link to a PayPal wallet, which appeared to be a private individuals. Um, and all of the videos on that channel, channel were monetized. They used like common hashtags such as dog rescue and poor kitten uh, and brought in millions of views and its most popular video was uh, was of a kitten with its head um, stuck between a plastic bowl which was basically looked a very sort of improbable scenario on the video and that had racked up more than 9.5 million views in just a couple of weeks after it was uploaded and YouTube removed the channel when we reported it to it and said does this breach your new policies uh, and that was the only action that it took against this once it had already been flagged and we also contacted one of the advertisers that, that appeared against that video as well uh, and they said that they didn't know anything about um, this uh, this video and channel and their, their advertising and brand shouldn't be represented against this as well. There's a problem of scale going on here, right? So we say that we found thousands of videos or in conjunction with other researchers have found thousands of videos since the ban was introduced. Hundreds more have been found. These videos are getting, you know, 9.5 million views. That's an awful lot of people watching something on YouTube that shouldn't be there. 
But this is a drop in the ocean compared to the scale of YouTube. But that doesn't mean that it isn't a substantial problem. And it doesn't mean that the people who are putting up these videos and putting these animals in danger to make these videos aren't making quite a lot of money. Again, that's the reason that they're doing it. And Matt, you've mentioned advertising, you've mentioned PayPal wallets, but it turns out that there are other features that YouTube has introduced to make money for creators that are being exploited by these scammers just the same yeah and as is often the way with all types of like online scams and fraud and things like this uh the platforms and the companies that are often sort of like trying to defend against various types of uh criminality or attacks or stuff going on they're always playing catch up with criminals who are one step ahead so um if a platform introduces something new, then um, people will be looking to exploit it as soon as possible. And we found this with this scenario as well of, uh, f- uh, of fake animal rescue videos and animal abuse videos um, that that has been the case. So in uh, December 2020 and uh, starting into the early months of this year as well, some of the uh, people behind these types of channels were also using some of YouTube's newest features to help grow their their channels and give them more of a veneer of legitimacy and one way they were doing this was through uh being granted partner status which essentially means that uh channels can make money from advertisements but they can also use uh various other features uh on youtube as part of their channels uh, and one of these is and uh, was recently introduced uh, was uh, YouTube giving donation boxes, which allows channels to uh, direct money to charities and introduce memberships to them as well. Um, so multiple videos uh, posted by the Ask you- An- Rescue Animals ch- charity uh, featured YouTube giving donation boxes. Uh, these essentially, they're just little boxes on a page which allows you to send money to a charity. Uh, and these raised funds for the World Animal Awareness Society charity, uh, which is a charity that that provides uh, video production and training to animal rescue groups around the world. Um, And these boxes, essentially, when they are hosted on um, these uh, fraudulent or fake animal rescue channels, essentially make them look a lot more legitimate. The charities actually get the money, so they are, uh, in a weird scenario, profiting from the abuse of these fake channels. Uh, But importantly, it also damages their reputations and is a way that these legitimate charities are being essentially targeted by um, charities, uh, by, sorry, not charities, by uh, fraudulent uh, fake rescue charities. So um, the charity we were just talking about there said that it was these types of donation boxes appearing on um, fake rescue channels were eroding their brand and taking away some of their business. um, And they were essentially making... uh, Uh, directing attention away from legitimate rescue videos that they were producing uh, and they had people that were their charity either members or subscribers or um, uh, or at least uh, supported the work of the legitimate charity were emailing them saying that we've seen your branding alongside these videos that uh, are showing abuse and faked rescue and all other types of uh, dodgy situations and really it was just impacting this charity and and their brand and lots of other charities that we sort of spoke to in this work also said they've seen similar things happening so um this new tool that was being had been introduced by youtube to help charities was being essentially abused um to uh really 
and ultimately end up damaging a charity's brand uh, as well. So um, YouTube hadn't done anything about uh, this type of donation box, but the people that we spoke to said that uh, the charities uh, where donation boxes are appearing um, should be given oversight of where their brand names are, are actually being used and where these donation boxes and the videos that they're being used upon so they can make sure it is in line with the work that they're doing and isn't involved as part of a bigger uh, effort or uh, way to scam people online. And the other thing that you mentioned there is YouTube channel memberships. So these donation boxes, giving boxes, don't make any money for the scammers, but they add this veneer of legitimacy. Something that can make them money is channel memberships. This is effectively subscribing a paid subscription to a channel. And we've seen these appear on a number of these scam animal rescue channels, which is really bad you know youtube has introduced a feature that is meant to allow legitimate creators to make money from its platform and this is being used by really really obvious scam channels to and these videos are getting millions of views and there's a chance it's difficult to tell because youtube doesn't have much transparency around how many people subscribe to channels to pay but there's a chance that they're making more money through that as well. It's a really, really detailed investigation. As we said right at the top, we've left out quite a lot of detail um, to fit it onto the podcast. But do head to the show notes to check it out and get in touch. Podcast at wired.co.uk. Have you seen any of these videos? What might be a better way for YouTube to combat the problem? Podcast at wired.co.uk. Our second story this week will be very relatable to the vast majority of us. And it's, it's about Zoom dysmorphia. That's right, yes. I've been speaking to a dermatologist called Shady Kurosh. Now, last summer, she noticed a worrying trend, a spike in appointment requests for appearance-related issues. She said that, you know, at a time, you know, summer of 2020, people were dying and getting COVID all over the world when it seemed like other matters would be top of mind. A lot of people were really concerned with feeling that they looked much worse than usual. Karosh is also an assistant professor of dermatology at Harvard Medical School and she started talking to her colleagues and others in her field and related fields like plastic surgery and they'd noticed a similar phenomenon as well. When she and her colleagues asked patients what was driving their decision to seek cosmetic treatment, a lot of them started citing video conferencing. Obviously in March 2020 we were all catapulted into this world of Zoom meetings and Teams meetings and staring at their own faces on a screen every day was wreaking havoc with people's self-image. It's kind of amazing how you'd imagine an unintended or a, a little thought about design decision has had such a potentially profound impact on so many of us. It doesn't necessarily make sense that, I mean, we're recording this podcast right now using Zoom so that we can see each other and I am staring at my own face, staring at you, Amit, which is not something that we do in quote unquote real life, but has become something that we've all become really used to over the last 18 months and seemingly what this story reveals is something that we all know to be true that we started noticing things about ourselves that we didn't previously notice so we all probably know what these things are but what what are they what have people been noticing so the, yeah so the things that that um, shady noticed were that people were inordinately preoccupied with sagging skin around their neck and their jowls with the size and shape of their nose with the pallor of their skin and they wanted cosmetic interventions to deal with this stuff they wanted botox they wanted fillers they wanted facelifts there was a huge spike in interest in nose jobs for instance um and she surveyed doctors and surgeons um examining this question of whether video conferencing was a potential contributor to body dysmorphic disorder which is this kind of broad 
umbrella for a lot of terms around self-image and things like that. And they dubbed it, as you said, James, Zoom dysmorphia. And this is slightly different. There have been versions of tech-related dysmorphia for a while, but to my mind, they were all related to us wanting to look like our best selves or a version of ourselves that we see through social media, you know, Snapchat filters and Instagram filters that make us look, quote-unquote, more attractive. Whereas what's happening here is, I think we've all realised, Zoom makes us look uglier than we really are. But... It's it's not the first time that we've had this problem. No, and actually that's a really interesting contrast, right? Because you might be aware of the term snap just dysmorphia, which was coined in 2015, and that was to describe the growing number of people who wanted to look like they did on Snapchat, like they'd been put through a face-altering filter in real life, with, you know, big eyes and sparkling skin. So even before COVID, there was this rise in patients coming to them with demands that were unrealistic and natural based on what they'd seen on social media. But that's not exactly a new phenomenon. Even before social media, patients might turn up at a plastic surgeon's office with, you know, a photo of a celebrity that that's cut from a magazine and say, oh, I want to look like this person or that person. So, you know, there there is a long history of people wanting to look like something they're not. But I guess what's different about Zoom dysmorphia is people just wanted to look like themselves again. And Zoom is um, not good for that. And it's it's not, when we say Zoom, we don't mean the software. The, the problem here, and it varies from person to person, is the hardware that Zoom is using. So by the looks of it, we've all got fairly all right webcams. I can see you all quite clearly. The angles aren't too unflattering. But throughout the pandemic, and I'm sure people listening to the podcast will be able to relate to this, either themselves or colleagues or friends might have webcams that are bizarrely positioned in the keyboard of their laptop. So you get a wonderful view right up their nose and of their double chin if they have one or triple chin, um, or it just makes them look a lot worse than than they are in real life if you're looking at them normally. It's quite a cruel mistress um the the computer webcam and the other thing that's quite odd and I'm, I'm realizing right now as as we're speaking is how close my face is to the thing that you're seeing me through this would be the equivalent of me more or less touching your nose if we were speaking <laughs> in real life like touching your nose with my nose in real yeah. life it's this, this isn't how we normally interact and yet it's become the way that we're so used to seeing each other, right? Yeah, and it's interesting that you said that, that our cameras are quite n- normal setup. But I think the thing about Zoom dysmorphia is that it sneaks up on you. You know, if you're using Snapchat, you're aware that you're viewing yourself through a filter. You know, even if you didn't want to know, that that's not actually what you look like. But video conferencing distorts our appearances in ways we might not even realise. So you and me, James, our cameras are in our our laptops and I think we're looking down at them whereas Matt I think is on a desktop computer with his camera a bit further away so he looks normal (laughs) he looks like we're normally used to seeing him but with with a laptop camera it's much closer as you say Um, and front-facing cameras distort your image a bit like a funhouse mirror is what Chris said so they make your noses look bigger they make your eyes look smaller that's as a function of being of how close you are to the camera Um, and which as you say is generally nearer than you'd ever stand in a real life conversation then there's the fact that like looking down at a smartphone or a laptop camera is the least flattering angle. You know, I remember when I was growing up on MySpace, you'd take your photos from above you because everyone knew <laughs> that that was the best, the best camera position. Um, and that's why the selfie sticks are so popular is because you look better in a photo from a selfie stick because the lens is further away from your face. And we're also used to seeing our own reflection in the mirror when our faces are relaxed. But, you know, if you're in a Zoom meeting and you're concentrating or you're bored, that's not 
the most flattering expression to hold when you look at yourself. So it's this combination of factors, many of which people aren't aware of, that's leading them to think that they look a lot worse than they actually do. And then there's things like lighting and poor internet connections and all this other stuff that kind of contributes to this feeling of, God, I look awful, when actually that might not be the case. It's really interesting what you say about when you see yourself, right? So when you're taking a selfie or a photograph of your face, you're posing, well, you might be anyway. When you're looking in the mirror, you're deliberately looking in the mirror to check yourself out or to make sure that your hair looks good before you head out for a drink or something. But on Zoom, and you're, you're right, and this might not be something that people have really thought about, you've got your resting face on or your bored face or your, oh God, why is this meeting taking so long face? And because the meeting might be boring, I guess a lot of people just disappear into their own faces or the faces of their colleagues. And it's this quite strange scenario that we found ourselves in. I've got my setup, you mentioned it there a second ago, I've actually got like two screens in front of me and um, I quite often spend a lot of time, I am, I'm doing it now as well, um, looking at the other screen, which my webcam uh, isn't on. Um, so it's always like the side of my face and it's always just a little bit like, actually, I forget that people, when I, if I'm muted myself or something, I'm not talking in the meeting, I forget that people are watching me just do work and it's like, I'm just, yeah, I, I hate to think what my face looks like sometimes or if I'm listening and they, they respond and say something and I'm just like pulling some resting uh sort of resting really annoyed or bored face your your resting face never looks annoyed or bored you always look utterly enthralled in whatever we're saying okay so Emmett, we've we've got this term zoom dysmorphia it's been coined we're aware of it what's happened now so this was about a year ago that this coin, this term was first coined and um, Karoshina Kholi's published a paper about it and it got picked up by the international media and she was inundated with emails and from friends and from strangers who really resonated with this term. And I think the the story published on it now has done you know, big numbers. So it's obviously something that really resonates with people. Um, and the worry that she had was that these changes in self-perception caused by essentially not having your camera set up properly might prompt people into doing unnecessary cosmetic procedures if you have a nose job because your nose looks too big on zoom what happens when you're not on zoom anymore and your nose i guess presumably looks too small in real life right like so she said that the first thing that she would do when someone came in for a consultation complaining that they look terrible on zoom or on teams was to just sit them in front of a mirror and have them look at their actual reflection in, in a real mirror for a while and some of the differences that they'd noticed just melted away in that scenario it's awareness, right? So the f the first step is to be aware that Zoom dysmorphia is a thing, potentially, and that you might be affected by it. And then if you're seeking to do something about it, the next thing to be aware of is, well, that's not actually what your face looks like. And if you spend some time to look at yourself in a mirror or just stop looking at your own face, you might forget that these non-existent problems were problems anyway. So they've now done a new study that suggests that we've had 18 months of a pandemic. Maybe people are heading back into offices now, but that doesn't mean that Zoom dysmorphia is going to go away as the pandemic recedes. Yeah, unfortunately not. So the reason that we're talking about this story um, again or now is that there's a new follow-up study by Koresh and her colleagues published in the International Journal of Women's Dermatology. Or this, this is, of course, a problem that affects both women and men. Um, so they surveyed 7,000 people about their attitude towards returning to in-person activities and their, I guess, self-perception um, 
image, I suppose. And the research group found that 71% were anxious or stressed, 64% had sought mental health support, 3 in 10 said that they planned to invest in their appearance as a coping strategy to deal with returning to in-person events. They cited concerns about weight gain, skin discoloration, wrinkles and acne, all things that may have been exacerbated by the amount of time spent staring at their own faces on Zoom. Um, Cora said that the people who spent more time on social media had a worsened self-perception of their own appearance. Um, there's a long history of psychological studies showing that essentially the more time you spend staring in a mirror, the more body image problems you have. There's kind of this mirror, these mirror studies go back decades. And the same thing was observed here. The people that spent more time staring into the technological mirror of social media expressed more anxiety. Among 18 to 24 year olds, it was the ones using filters who were most likely to have accessed mental health services. So we're in a situation where during the pandemic, this funhouse mirror of Zoom kind of twisted the images that were being reflected back to us. And at the same time, although we were trapped inside, we were still getting bombarded with kind of these perfect images on social media and on television. So there's this real dichotomy between thinking you look awful because you're only seeing yourself on Zoom while still seeing images of your friends edited on Instagram and Snapchat and of celebrities. And you think, well, they still look good. What is it just me? And these factors combined had this really damaging impact on self-perception, anxiety and mental health. And this latest piece of research suggests that unfortunately it's not going away too easily. But it can go away, right? There, there is something that we can do about this. Yeah, as you alluded to earlier, James, the best way is through awareness, right? Just knowing that Zoom dysmorphia exists is a big thing. And, and I guess knowing that it's not you, it's likely the camera or the lighting or the way that you, you've set up your display um, is a big, big thing. She says that she had an overwhelming number of comments from people who thought they were alone in feeling like there was something wrong with appearance during the pandemic. Um, so the big thing is about helping people know they're not alone. Now, there are, there are more practical, technical things that, that you can do. Weirdly, um, I, I only found this out uh, after this story was published and I started having a poke around in Zoom settings. There is an option to, quote, touch up my appearance. And I'm, I'm looking at this right now. Um, and uh, the slider next to touch up my appearance is set to minimum. So you're seeing the the, the real me as my webcam sees it. But I'm just going to... I'm just going to slide that to maximum. Yeah, I just did mine but as well. Look, it's just sort of made my face... I, I realise this is a terrible thing to talk about in an audio medium, but if you were able to see my face, dear listeners, you would see that it's kind of it's kind of gone all blurry and smooth. Um, and I have a moustache and a beard, and it's kind of made them look fluffy in a way that that they're not. So I think it's trying to get rid of my, my wrinkles and blemishes, but it doesn't understand what a beard is um there's there's also another option um if you don't like uh if you don't like the weird zoom beauty feature uh another option is to just turn off self-view you can just get rid of your video so i did this for for a few months um and i had to stop doing it because it became quite strange if the other person insists on having their video on and you've got your video on for you to have no awareness of i've gotten so used to seeing how i look that it was quite strange to not see myself while talking to someone else. And the second I go out into the real, the real world, I don't have that problem. Like, I don't need to attach a mirror to Matt Burgess's head to have a conversation with him in real life so I can see myself. But speaking through Zoom, I think I've gotten so accustomed to it that forcing myself to do it for a couple of months didn't really help. I wanted to see my face again. I don't know if that's relatable to either of you. 
I think you want to see where you're set up in the frame, right? You want to you want to position yourself in a way that you your whole face is in the frame, or that you're covering up whatever laundry you've got drying behind you, and or, or whatever, which in my case is a, a losing cause. Um, but it, it's, I think it's more about that. But you're right, yeah, you don't have that safety net in, in the real world, so it's kind of ridiculous that you kind of need it online. Um, and in terms of the appearance filter, yeah, it's. Um, I think I had it on by accident for a while, and when I turned it off, it was a real, <laughs> a really harrowing moment. Uh, and I was like, "Oh, my skin isn't as uh, Snapchat smooth as I would like." Um, and you know, the, the the low light levels in this room really are kind of washing me out, or whatever. I think that there's something else going on for for me as well, and I'd be interested to hear what you both think about this as well. But um, I don't want to point any fingers, but it's it's been noticeable. And I think this is something that a lot of people have talked about, that the pandemic has somewhat reduced the expanse of people's wardrobes, right? Whereas when when people went into the office, we'd one one might make an effort, right? One might not wear one's pajamas or the same. I mean, I'm, I'm wearing the same hoodie that I've worn pretty much for the last 18 months on and off right now. Um I, I am dressed, um, but I'm not dressed as I might be were I to head into the office. And that maybe lack, I, like I haven't done my hair, I probably would have shaved my moustache a bit neater were I heading out to, to see people on a regular basis. That sort of lack of self-care that I think we've all experienced in varying degrees through the pandemic, coupled with constantly staring at our own faces... Has, it's not a perfect storm, that's a little bit over the top, but it, it feels like it's had a little bit of an impact potentially on people's self-image, right? Yeah, I, I, def- I definitely think that is the case. Like, just for example, for me today, like I was planning on going to the gym at lunchtime in a, in a few hours when we finished recording this, and it's like, well, in that case, I, I'll... Uh, I'm not seeing anybody other than on Zoom, so I won't have a shower until after the gym rather than before before in the morning, which I would have done if I was going to work and then going to the gym at lunchtime. Um, and yeah, I think it really does sort of like some of those small things as well. And just like uh, particularly if it's if it's a Zoom call with uh, colleagues and yourselves, like won't spend as much time doing my hair as if it was with somebody externally but I think it has had that little bit of an impact on those sort of like standards and things like that that I would think about especially with people that I know and uh, we all know each other fairly well and work together for a few years and feel like don't have to make as much of a effort with with you in some respects but um, yeah that has been definitely a case with Zoom and just having that right in front of you and like seeing when the little preview box comes up like this is what you look like on zoom beforehand and like, there's been a few times when i've been like oh god i really do look a state uh, even for even for people that i know pretty well i, de- I definitely putting jeans on now definitely feels like an occasion you know what you know what i mean <laughs> like i've been wearing like jogging bottoms for like 18 months so when i do put when i do go out and i put jeans and like nice shoes or whatever on and like a shirt which is like an alien concept these days it just really genuinely feel like an occasion whereas was that was like you know that used to be my relatively scruffy you know work outfit we're not exactly wearing suits to work every day um whereas now it's like regressing another step but it's quite interesting i think people put a lot of weight behind the way they dress and the way they look and i know that like uh, personally like a lot of the sort of (laughs) the, the way i express my you know likes and personality and you know what music i listen to is through clothing and actually during the pandemic you're just wearing sort of generic sportswear and a lot of that gets eroded um which i think is quite interesting 
Yeah, and I think a lot of people would recognise the importance of, and I don't mean getting dressed up full into glad rags, but of making yourself feel good and feeling that you look nice or whatever. And it's interesting to see the the dual forces of not putting in too much of an effort into what you wear and how you look after your face. Not you, Amit, one, not, not, not you. <laughs> Um, combined with staring at oneself on Zoom or Teams for potentially hours each day, um, if if you're like me and end up in a lot of meetings, it's quite a curious scenario to find yourself in. And it will be interesting um, to head back to the office and to start to leave these these ways behind, how quickly they melt away. And for some people, they won't. That's exactly what the academics that you spoke to found. And just being a bit more aware of the problem, having open and honest conversations about it can help to make people feel that they're not alone um, and that there are easy ways to to get out of the way that they're thinking and feeling about themselves. But I'd be really interested to hear from some of you guys. Podcast at wire.co.uk. If you like, I imagine nearly all of us have spent the past 18 months staring at your own face on Zoom or Teams. How has that affected your sense of self-image? Have you done anything about it? Have you turned off self-view? Have you turned on a beauty filter? Have you dressed up your background, fixed your webcam, done things to make you feel better and, in your eyes, look better? This stuff's important. Podcast at wire.co.uk with thoughts on that or anything else that we talked about on the show this week. That's it for us. I think we're all off to fix our hair and put on some jeans so we can feel special. You do the same. Have a good week and we'll see you again same time next week. Take care. Goodbye. Bye. Goodbye.